Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to answer your Bible questions. If you'd like to send them to us, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to get proper spelling of that, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Com. And if you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our streaming page where you can engage with us face-to-face. At the bottom of the screen, you'll not only have the email address spelled out for you, but also a chance while we're live to answer and send us your questions on the right-hand side of the screen, a little chat box, if you will. If you prefer social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe, you'll have the benefit of being notified when we are going live in your respective time zone. But note, we also have a trade-off. We are at the mercy of YouTube and Facebook's uh, ill repute, if you will, of allowing ideas they don't approve of to flourish. So if we are, for whatever reason, not broadcasting and haven't given you prior notification, feel free to join us on our website, which is, again, calvarychristianfellowship.com. C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. They can't ban us on our own platform yet, so we'll use it while we can. Note that the kind of questions that we'll be answering will, of course, be those asked in the form of a question. We'll also appreciate Bible questions, meaning the substance of the answer is the Bible, just as much as the question. We don't want to go beyond it as far as its relevance to you. And, of course, sincerity is also key. If you want to hear the answer, we'll be happy to provide it, but make sure that's included in your question. With all that being said, though, and uh, wanting to make the most of the time that we have for the broadcast, we always take the time to pray before getting into your questions. So, Peter, would you like to start us off? And we'll get into, as well, our rhetoric lesson for the week. Awesome. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the work that you do in our lives and in the all that you're doing around the world, Lord. Uh, we want to spend this time focusing on your word and your truth. I do pray that me and Sean would speak in a way that would honor your word and that all those listening would be edified by it and brought closer to you. We are thankful for you, God, and in your name. Amen. That is true. Now, concerning rhetoric, the art of communication, when we're talking to people, we want to first of all remember that they are people and that there is a respect that's due there. But there's also a fine art in being able to communicate properly, regardless of the kind of person you're talking to. So when dealing with people and the ideas that they exchange. There are a number of ways that we can either get things in improper order or mishandle certain topics over others and realize that uh, this is affecting the way I'm talking about them, and as well the truth behind them, their relevance to reality. So in today's topic, we're going to be talking about the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, which is <laughs> just the best name ever. <laughs> yeah, especially for us here in Arizona. We're cowboys by association, not by <laughs> trade, but the point of emphasis is, and this is an illustration of it, when you shoot at a wall and then you draw the target around what you hit. And of course, this is a very uh, 
paradised illustration, but we ask ourselves, okay, so how am I setting myself up to succeed in a way that isn't exactly true? Well, the way that people do this, how you commit this Texas sharpshooter fallacy, is when you overgeneralize areas you want to talk about, you make them as broad as possible, and then through the informal fallacy of overgeneralization, flip it on its head and say, the issues that go against my position are super trivial, that they're not as relevant as they ought to be. Instead of letting everything stand or fall on its own merit, you overemphasize what you want to prove, and you undermine what you don't want to be included in the conversation. And we read an example of this in the... Uh, well, I guess... Call it this, news? I guess. Yeah, whatever it was. The reflection was on a certain individual, a Catholic French woman by the name Joan of Arc. Uh, what were the uh, views of that, and how is this an example of this form of fallacy? Uh, right, so this came to my attention this week because I thought it was funny, and then the funniness turned into seriousness. <laughs> but it began really funny where a theater, I think it was in England, was making a play about the life of Joan of Arc, and they decided to portray her as being non-binary. And their response to criticism, obviously there would be a lot of criticism to that, was, well, you know, it's art, so we can kind of portray it her however we want. You know, artistic liberties happen in all sorts of biopics, and so this is just our artistic liberty. And at that point, it was just ridiculous and funny, but then science got involved and people decided to defend what this play was doing and not just say, well, it's an artistic expression, but to say, no, 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 Joan of Arc really was non-binary. Now, that sounds like a crazy claim because it is a crazy claim. The whole point and reason which we remember Joan of Arc is because she was a woman. If Joan of Arc was a man, then she actually wouldn't be. I mean, it would be pretty impressive because before the age of 19, she led multiple uh, campaigns in war and won. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and there's right? uh, a bit of embellishment as far as the reasons behind this. Some say that she had visions of her patron saint, and we as not only Protestants, but first and foremost, Christians would question the role of those who have gone to their heavenly reward interacting with this world in that way. We also would challenge some of the sources that would claim, you know, she got hit by an arrow and then alone in the battle pulled it out. She had help. But the point being made is she was a very significant figure in French history, and she's not the only one. There are also women throughout the Eurosphere, if you want to call it that. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce her name very well. Uh, shame to my ancestors, but Athel <laughs> Flade, I believe, the uh, Lady of America, she was uh, not America, but American, that, that's the term. Uh, she was a, a very prominent political leader who just decided not to remarry after her husband got killed. Now, again, as a self-avowed uh, and proud descendant of Leif Erikson. Uh, some of her methods in combat and her uh, political retribution towards her husband's killers were without a doubt brutal, and that just makes her more attractive in my eyes. But the point being made is just that. There are lots of examples in history of women, even in the Bible, like Deborah, right. who took these quote-unquote masculine roles. Right. But in the overgeneralization of a feminine figure in a masculine role, how far do they stretch that? Right. So remember what this claim is. So when you call someone non-binary, what you are saying 
is that they are neither male nor female. You're not talking about their temperament, right? That's when, when Sean's saying that they're taking on masculine roles, that is what he's talking about. Their temperament and their societal roles tend to go against what the traditional understanding and expectation of women or men would be. Doesn't mean they're incapable of it. It's just there's an expectation to certain jobs because of how you're equipped for it. Absolutely. The modern day understanding of gender is no, 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 no. If you perceive yourself a particular way, you are that thing. Which is based on what, again? Right. That is the Gnostic heresy, Gnostic dualism, which believes that there is a fundamental difference between who you are, your biology, and your what you would call your psychology. So who you are cannot be figured out by simply what your body is or what society tells you. You can only figure it out through dramatic introspection into the real you, the supernatural you that is spirit. Which, um, as we've seen and discussed in previous messages, can change by on a day-by-day basis. That's right, and usually does. Right? So uh, that's what the non-binary designation means. It doesn't mean, and you got to keep your eye on the ball when it comes to these rhetoric lessons, it doesn't mean they can't. They don't have to prove that Joan of Arc didn't fit into traditional gender roles. We agree with them. That's why she's in history, right? And attractive. <laughs> yeah, right? All, they have to prove that Joan of Arc did not consider herself male or female. She thought she was in some ethereal, androgynous middle ground that doesn't fit into male or female categories. Which is a worldview that was only and has only ever been expressed in the last decade, right. <laughs> let alone even if we're going to grant maybe half a century. Right. But to read that back into the fifth or the Middle Ages, the Renaissance period, that requires a lot of evidence. Right. And we need to ask, is all the data being handled fairly, or are they emphasizing and de-emphasizing things at a disproportionate rate? Right. And remember what Sean said about this fallacy. It's like shooting a wall and then drawing a bullseye around it. So it's just finding a point and then saying, this agrees with me. Right? I got it perfectly. I got it perfectly. Exactly what I would expect to see in history if I was right, I see. Right. So they're overgeneralizing and they're making things out to be what they are not. This is also is not a uh, logical fallacy, but it's an something informal fallacy. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, not 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 that, not the Texas sharpshooter, but anachronism. We're also yeah, going to talk about that's anachronism. That's just a factual error. That's just a factual error. So what an anachronism is, is it's reading back into history your modern day understanding. So a good example of this would be, you know, in when Lord of the Rings came out, I remember a lot of people were the freaking out. The films or the cartoon the the or the books? <laughs> yeah, the films uh, by Peter Jackson. So in the first Fellowship of the Ring movie, there was a clear, I think it was a Corvette driving one of the scenes. That's an anachronism. That Corvette don't belong there, right? That is a modern day innovation driving around in a medieval era type movie, even though it was fantasy as clues set in the medieval era. Tolkien's <laughs> world, and I know Amazon will challenge Didn't this. include Corvettes. Yeah, or helicopters, <laughs> right. which is why there's an outtake of Boromir right. walking up a mountain and a helicopter appears and they have to reshoot it because that would be false given right. the narrative they want to tell. So an anachronism in history is when you're looking at something that's historical and you're reading into it a modern day innovation. So you're going to see both. I'll point them out to you in this article, which is, to be fair, well written. And that is... They got grammar right. Yeah, they got grammar right. And that's one thing that we always want to point out about rhetoric. Rhetoric is an art form, which means that some people can get it right in the sense that they're very good orators, but they're just wrong in everything they're saying, right? And uh, they might 
might incorporate fallacies to make their points stronger than they really are. Or eloquent in communicating my error. That's right. (laughs) A really, really eloquent heretic. Okay. (laughs) So uh, this is from the article. It says this. And uh, medieval Christians, uh, medieval Christian models of feminine virtue paradoxically considered virginal women as masculine because it was believed men were better able to control their sexual urges. Okay, so you're seeing the seeds of this. How do we know that Joan of Arc wasn't exactly uh, male or female? Well, she was a virgin, and virgins, uh, being a virgin was kind of more of a masculine quality in that day. So therefore, That's a quote. This is they a quote from the article. this as a masculine trait because why? It communicated self-control. Right. I hope everyone, male <laughs> or female, has that virtue, not necessarily men over women. And in fact, I think society would uh, have a lot less excuse for the way it's portraying men if this was in fact the case. But notice this is almost a borderline straw man, <laughs> but let's keep going. All right. Joan called herself the maiden. But that isn't necessarily because she wanted to emphasize her femininity. Ah. Diminishment. She believed her virginity was crucial to her religious calling. She wore men's clothing. But that doesn't mean she thought of herself as male. Masculine clothing may have been a way to express her role as a military leader or a sexual unavailability. Though it seems... (laughs) they just didn't build women armor. Yeah. This was the exception. (laughs) Though it seems paradoxical, Joan likely understood her own maidenhood as a masculine trait. Now you see the May have. May have. It's possible that she may have seen it as a non-binary trait. Her expression of gender was bound up in medieval Christian ideas about virginity, martyrdom, and divine instruction that doesn't correspond with the experiences of modern women or non-binary people. Joan was divinely inspired to lead France to victory and willing to die for her cause. This very debate over which gender box she might have ticked would be alien and inconsequential to her. That doesn't mean we can't relate to Joan's experience of gender, just just that there's a whole spectrum of ways to relate. Women have a right to be inspired by Joan as a a strong woman acting in defiance of a patriarchal society, but those of us who are queer or non-binary should also be able to see ourselves reflected in her transgression of gender roles and refusal to conform. Okay. Transgression's a strong word. Yeah. Now, earlier in this article, they also make a point that they, them, which is how non-binary people refer to those are the pronouns that non-binary people utilize, they make the claim that people were referred to as they's and them's, individuals were referred to as they's and them's, even back in the 14th century. Now, what they don't point out is that, yeah, of course, when you don't know the gender of a person, you use the word they. So, for instance, before I knew the gender of the baby that is growing inside of my wife's womb, we referred to that them as a as a them but then when we figured out that it was a he we started saying he because it's weird to say that someone is a they or a them when you know their gender so odd environment to find out you're having a boy but congratulations yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so what you see in this article is you see multiple usages of this fallacy so the points that they're drawing their bullseyes around is well they used they and them pronouns back in the 1400s It's an anachronism because they didn't mean they and them the way that you mean they and them, first off. Secondly, you are overemphasizing this usage. It actually has nothing to do with gender ideology whatsoever, right? You're making a point of it in order to demonstrate that you are correct. The other point that they're drawing a bullseye around is saying that, well, Joan of Arc was a virgin. And somehow, I'm still 
scratching my head on this one. Somehow that makes her more masculine than feminine, and therefore she's not fully feminine or masculine. She's in the middle. And thirdly, she led an army and wore men's clothes. So all of these things point to the fact that she is non-binary, right? So they have these points, and they're drawing bullseyes around. They're like, see, history vindicates me. It's very, very clear that Joan of Arc was a non-binary person. Now, they, they quickly backtrack on that a little bit, and they say, well, you know, it's not that she would have necessarily ticked the box of non-binary if you put that in front of her, because she wouldn't have known what you meant, which undercuts their point, and I'm not going to get into that right now, but it totally undercuts their point of believing that this gender spectrum has always existed in the world. But at any rate, it undercuts their point, and they say, well, she wouldn't have checked the box, but she certainly would have felt that she doesn't neatly fit in male or female roles. Which has anything to do with what exactly <laughs> that hasn't been defined so. that's right it hasn't been defined and this is all speculation they're all just assuming things about joan of arc that aren't explicitly said once again drawing circles around points that they have themselves shot at the wall now so. again we don't just want to emphasize church history we do admire the work that god did through joan of arc in a military sense at least at face value but we don't question her salvation maybe the uh, integrity of some of the embellishment of the stories around her if you yeah. have follow-up questions about patron saints feel free to ask but we would be remiss if this didn't ultimately bring us back to scripture so do we have an example of this in action in the bible as well well indeed we do jesus pointed out the pharisees and the scribes were committing this fallacy in a very lengthy trirade <laughs> that he commits against them this is matt or you can all remember this one, Matthew 23, 23. He points out to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! So you're holding standards to others that you yourselves aren't keeping. How is that demonstrated? How are you being inconsistent? For you pay, here's the emphasis, tithe of mint, anise, and cumin. Those are interesting words. What are they? Their spices. So even down to their spice gardens, they got one for the Lord, nine for me. They, they make sure they tithe on the gross, not the net, of even their gardens. Right. But, as Jesus goes on to say, have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is the sharpshooter fallacy. If I emphasize, oh, I go to church, I call myself a Christian, I even am saved, does that excuse the fact that there are still things going on in my life that need to be brought in conformity with the glory and the character of God? see the point. I'm overemphasizing the things I want to talk about, my own self-righteousness, the things I am getting right, the Pharisees in their tithing habits, but are neglecting Micah 6.8. <laughs> That's a problem. So note the issue here and why this fallacy needs to be kept and addressed. Now before we go into the questions and <clears throat> conclude our rhetoric lesson for this week, what are some of the ways we need to be, as far as our own communication goes? A aware of these issues, because if I'm speaking from my own experience, I've done this without even realizing I'm doing it. People say, well, you're biased. Hmm. 
everyone's biased, otherwise they wouldn't believe anything. But the question is, is my bias making me commit this fallacy? Am I overemphasizing the things I want, and here's where the error comes in, dismissing things that actually need more attention? Yeah, the best way to deal with this, because it is a very difficult one, like you said, Sean, it's very insidious. It could crop up, you're not even realizing that you're doing it, uh, because we all do have biases and we all do have prejudices. The best way to avoid this one is before you speak, before you uh, talk about a point that you're trying to make, listen to an opposing point, right? Listen to someone who has dealt with this and has opposed it from the other side. That will help you at least see a differing perspective because oftentimes when we're talking about this fallacy, we're talking about two people taking the same data set and reading very different things into it. So what you want to be sure that you're doing is listen to the opposing side. How are they looking at that data set? How are they looking at the life of Joan of Arc? Or how are they looking at tithing to the Lord? What is the opposing position? And is there credence there? Is there something that I'm missing? Am I being unfair with the data or with the quotation or with the law that I'm emphasizing at the moment? And am I neglecting something that might be a little bit weightier? So you have to really introspect and look at your own argumentation and ask that question. And once again, this this is something that happens all the time in interpersonal conflict, right? You will overemphasize certain points, like for instance, a, a husband who just cheated on his wife, he'll be like, well, you know, I, I cook for you and I clean and I do these other things. Great. But you cheated on her. You know, you do need to look at that as well. You can't ignore that big plot point and just overemphasize these other ones, right? So we have to really be patient and look at these particular things. If somebody is doing this fallacy, if you notice them doing it, this is one of the more intricate ones. You can't just directly call them on it. So usually there's like a really, there's a ninja move to get around this, these types of fallacies. This one is just, you have to just be very, very direct to say, what about that? What about this, right? You have to point out a different perspective. And if you're dealing with someone, like I said, if you're dealing with someone who legitimately wants to talk to you, they want to deal with these things, they want to rationally look at these particular data sets, they'll listen to you. They'll be like, oh, okay, maybe maybe I didn't see it that way. Or, okay, let's look at it a different way. But give a rational opposing perspective on what they're pointing out, right? That's the way that you do it. Uh, if you're on the spot, meaning someone has given you a data point that you were unaware of, this has happened to me many, many times, right? I'm sitting down with a Mormon, I'm sitting down with a Muslim, they're bringing out something and I'm like, whoa, you know, like the first time I ever heard about the Council of Nicaea, which is again, the Texas sharpshooter (laughs) fallacy for sure, uh, I didn't know anything about it. I was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know there was a church council about the deity of Christ. That seems pretty corrupt to me. So then they were like, see, so the church has corrupted everything else, right? So if the church decided on this, they must have decided on everything. So I had to say, I, I don't really know what you're talking about. I need to go research that. And when I researched the council in Nicaea and figured out exactly what it was, then I was able to bring that to their attention. So it does take a little bit of research and looking at the finer points, like Sean said, not just looking at one point, but looking at the whole. What exactly are we talking about and are there different ways of looking at it? All right, so let us know if that's all clear and we'll look forward to talking to you again about more of these (coughs) issues next week. Now moving on to your questions. This is an email that we received uh, as soon as the page wants to load on me here uh, from (laughs) uh, Patra who wants to know about Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, and the descriptions of Jesus in the Bible. 
Uh, does the Bible describe Jesus's physical appearance, and is this description representative of Jesus's attributes? If so, what does it mean? Well, uh, Petra, thank you for the question. It's oftentimes, I guess, wrongly advertised as the book of Revelation being the hardest book the Bible to understand. I actually believe it's easiest if you read the Bible, and I mean that not just in a kind of smarmy way, but also in a more direct way. There's a reason they put it at the back. The first 65 books clarify the the 66th, because note that point. In the book Revelation itself, 403, 404 verses in the whole book, there are 300 allusions, references, or outright quotations to the Old Testament, which means that for every verse you read, there is at least a 75% chance this is referencing something. And there's a rule in all biblical interpretation, but especially in Revelation, regarding symbols. It doesn't mean that this isn't literal, it means it means something. And the meaning of those symbols is in one of two ways. If it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. If it has been explained before, it won't be. So what, for example, and we'll go through this verse by verse briefly, albeit if you want to know more details on this, feel free to join our uh, Revelation Wednesday night study where we discussed Revelation chapter 1 in detail. But noting the passages and that this is all off the cuff here, uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, John speaking says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So, so far, what do we have? We have seven golden lampstands. What's the significance of that? Well, if I finish reading to the end of the chapter, <laughs> doesn't let me finish that section before it gets into an explanation. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, spoiler alert for something else that's about to come up, and the seven golden lampstands. So two things are described here that haven't been explained before. They're about to be. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches. There you go. Continuing on, it says, one like the son of... or. Yeah, in the midst of one like the Son of Man. Now, what's that a reference to? It doesn't explain it, so it's probably a callback to something. Do you remember anything that mentions someone who looks like a human, but would emphasize that, Son of Man, as a title? Right, right. So uh, the main passage that we're looking at in that case would be Daniel chapter 7. Right. So there, there are multiple parts of the Bible that refer to individuals as son of man, right? Ezekiel is a very good example of that. Ezekiel is referred to as the son of a son of man many, many times throughout his book. But in Daniel chapter 7, we see the son of man. So I'm a son of a man. <laughs> You're a son of a man. It just There's means a, human. It just but means what human. is this son of man doing? He's riding on the clouds, right. which is a reference to the Psalms in right. saying that the Lord rides the clouds. Right. So you got someone who looks like a human, but he's doing stuff that God does. Right. So there is this idea, and you see it in Psalm 8, the writer of Hebrews points this out, that there will be a man, like a human being, that will redeem mankind and be put us back in the place where we always should have been, which is to be uh, filling the earth and subduing it, right? Being at the peak of creation, serving directly under God. But we had fallen and we couldn't get back up, pardon the expression, and therefore we needed someone to save us. Now, there have been various kings and prophets that God had anointed that allowed 
for some amount of intercession between God and man, but all of these prophets and kings had one thing in common. They were fallen. We needed a the Son of Man with a capital S. We needed one peak Son of Man, and Daniel sees this Son of Man in a vision. It's a very cool vision if you want to look it up, where he sees one like the Son of Man coming down and receiving a kingdom from the Ancient of Days, which is very clearly a depiction of God, and then all the nations worshiping him in a very, very religious sense, right? So it's not just them bowing down, it's them religiously giving him all the obeisance due to God alone. Which Paul the Apostle also emphasizes in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, as noting the worship due only to God, because in the Psalms, again, what does it say? And in Isaiah as well, God doesn't share his glory with anybody. That's right. So Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man, some people think that he's being humble when he says that, like, oh, Jesus, you know, well... Don't call me son of God. I'm just I'm just a son of a man, man. I'm just I'm just a son of Joseph. Don't think nothing of me. No, when Jesus is calling himself the son of man, especially in Mark where he's at his trial and they ask him if he's the Messiah and he says, "I am." And, and you will see the son of man <laughs> riding doing what? Clouds, riding on the clouds and judging the earth. And that's when the Pharisee or the high priest right. tore his robes and, in violation of the law by the way. Right, it said that he was committing blasphemy, which is associating himself with God. So How would you do that if he's just a human? Right. Oh, because he's doing stuff God does. That's right. Note that so point. he's referencing himself in that way. And he also builds on that point, it says, and goes on to say, he was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So he's got some, uh, as the kids say, drip going on here. But what, again, is that a reference to? Well, the golden band was a literal quotation of, once again, the book of Daniel, chapter 10 and verse 5, where we saw a messianic vision being given to Daniel. It notes as well, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Flame of fire is easier to, I guess, associate with this when we go to, I think, Isaiah, as well as, would it be Second Kings, the sinners in Zion feared for who can uh, withstand this consuming fire. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those who may fear him, and so forth. What this is noting, the, uh, I guess, and I, I don't I want eloquent. Let's just stick to the passages. That's a reference to that. It's describing God. But also what's interesting is his and hair were white like wool. Uh, well intended, I'm sure. It says, well, Jesus hadn't been back for 2,000 years, so I guess he's gotten <laughs> older. No, that's a quotation from the, or reference to rather the Proverbs, where it notes that the whiteness of man's hair is a crown of glory. It reflects wisdom. And the fullness of wisdom is found in Christ. The Apostle Paul made a reference to that as well. Uh, it goes on to say in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now again, the waters, that's a reference to the Psalms, the voice of the Lord is the sound of many waters, and it goes on to emphasize that as well. But what about brass? What's the significance of that in Scripture? Yeah, um, brass... Gosh, I'm actually confusing brass and bronze in my head right now. <laughs> so, not, not, not too relevant, yeah. a mix of copper and iron. But right. The point of emphasis is uh, brass and bronze, always these pictures and associated, especially in the construction of the temple, judgment. with judgment. Yeah, yeah, always whenever something would be sacrificed or dealt with sin, God specifically said, make this out of bronze. Make the hooks that keep the curtains up so that people don't have to watch all the animals being slaughtered out of brass, noting those points. But what's interesting about this as well is that his feet are fine brass. 
that's a reference to something as well, because in the book of Zechariah, what does the Messiah say about himself? That he alone treads, treads the wine press. of the what? Wine press. Of the wrath of God. The wrath of God, yeah. Note that point in really association. crazy passage if you want to read that in your own time. Yeah. And especially if you cross-reference it with Revelation 19. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll go more into that on next Wednesday, the time of this study. Uh, it says that he had seven stars in his right hand. We know what that means. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, again, that's not literal. That'd be weird. But the question is, where else in the Bible do we have described something that would make sense like this? Well, if it's already been made clear enough that Jesus is God, or specifically God the Son, why would his mouth emit a sword? Is there something else that's compared to a sword? Yeah, so the Word of God is almost always referenced as a sword, especially in Hebrews 4. Right. Yeah, uh, word for word. Right. <laughs> the word of the Lord is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus speaks the word of God. You get the association. If the sword is the word of God, if Jesus' words are the word of God, then Jesus' word is the sword. <laughs> it's not hard to associate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, verse 17, or, uh, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. That's reference back to the transfiguration and the Old Testament references therein. And when I, uh, yeah, you asked to stop at verse 16, that's what it goes on to note. There are significant passages as well. He makes a direct quotation to himself in Isaiah 44, 6. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, but the point, though, I think stands, Petra, let us know if that's clear. But regarding this, of course, these are all symbols shown literally to John, but Mm -hmm. with meaning behind them, why this way and not other ways. When people would make the point of emphasis on, well, what did Jesus actually look like? There are racial supremacist groups, they are racist, but racial supremacist groups who would say, well, Jesus was this ethnicity, and you have to be that ethnicity to be saved. Or they would overemphasize or distort certain passages. I think it was Malcolm X who uh, like twisted this passage and say that his feet are burnt, <laughs> but uh, not burning yeah. <laughs> with bronze that would be bright, not black. But the point being made is that uh, Anglo-Israel tribes are saying, "Well, just look at all the artwork produced of him." Not accurate. Yeah. <laughs> he was a descendant of a Judeo-Palestinian family. Would have looked like the average Jew, which is again a type of Caucasian, but it would have been more all of it than you know me. The point though being made is that when we're talking about these things, do we actually know what Jesus physically looked like? Not really. And why is that? Yeah. Why would that be a secondary issue? Well, you know, there's there's uh, multiple reasons as to why it would be secondary, but the, the most important one is that the veneration of Christ's flesh was never something that he wanted to do. So God, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, he worked through material things, and the tendency of mankind is to take a material thing and to venerate it as a immaterial, authentic theological thing. Uh, We see them do this with the serpent that Moses raises up in the wilderness of Israel, I mean the wilderness of the Sinai. So people of Israel being bitten by snakes, and he raises up a bronze bronze serpent. and uh, Judging their sin for wanting to go back to Egypt. Absolutely, and when people looked at it, it healed them. It it literally stopped the venom from killing them. So later on, they actually set that up in the temple and were doing some not-so-great means of worship around it until Hezekiah to throw it down. Has uh, anyone uh, ever thought uh, the serpent on the pole, why does that mean healing? Yep. Early source, but... (laughs) Yep. And uh, when it comes to Jesus, 
his flesh, right? God worked through his flesh, but to venerate his flesh would be something that is very foolish. This is where you get the ideology for many people that, oh man, this is the water where Jesus drank, and this is a splinter from the cross, and this is a, a little thread from one of his tunics, and this is right. When people are doing that, they're venerating the body of Jesus, right? The, the, the body of Jesus was not divine. Divinity dwelt within the body of Jesus, but the body itself was not divine, which is why, once again, the disciples never felt it necessary to dig up the body and bow down to it, right? Once Jesus rose, they're bowing down to him, but again, they're bowing down to God, the God-man. They're not bowing down to the flesh, right? They didn't think that, like, oh, this this body is the great worker of God. The body is God, and and many of our Muslim friends mistake that oftentimes. We're like, well, you're, God is not a man, right? Numbers. It says it in the Bible. God is not a man. Yes, God not in his the nature. the kind of man that lies. Right, right. God in his nature is not a man, but God took on the nature of a man. That doesn't change his fundamental nature, though. He is the God-man. That's very, very important distinction to make. All right. Let us know if that helps you out. A uh, few questions from Isaiah. Uh, he wants to know, first of all, what is the river of life mentioned in Revelation, referencing Revelation 22, I believe, and is that literal or symbolic? Well, literal as in, will there be a river flowing from the temple? There's no way to take that that wouldn't mean that a river would be flowing from the temple, and we have passages in Zechariah and so forth that would also denote that, but as far as the symbol, the symbolic significance of it, uh, go to what it's quoting. Go to Ezekiel chapters 39 through 40, and what's interesting about that is that when there's this description, a lurid one, by the way, of the temple that's going to inhabit the Millennial Kingdom, this uh, very interesting aspect of it leading up to the throne of God is, of course, the fact that it gets deeper, oddly enough, the closer you get <laughs> rather than the farther you get. Normally it's the other way around in oceans unless you're in a very specific area. Mm-hmm. But the point being made is this when we look for the application, there's been plenty of commentaries that have said, oh, well, you know, it's like, you know, deeper you go into relationship with God, the more he just overwhelms you, and there's some merit to that. But as far as the significance of living water, (laughs) spring water, if you will, and it being in more and more abundance the closer and closer you get to God's presence, what, uh, I guess, would our Lord have said as far as the significance of rivers of living water? Right, so uh, Jesus Jesus makes references to these things a couple times, but the the most important one, he actually did it on a very specific time in the feast days, which I'm not going to get into, but in John 7, he stood up at this time where water would have been there was a specific time in the feast days where they would stop the running of the water. And he stands up at that moment and says, I am, I mean, I'm sorry, he doesn't say I am. He if says, come unto me. Thirsts, right. Let him come to me and out of his innermost being will flow rivers, rivers of, of living, living water. water. And uh, he spoke that in direct reference to the Holy Spirit. So a lot of people, when they look at the throne in the book of Revelation, they see the Trinity because you have the Father and the Son both depicted on the throne, and then you have the river flowing from the throne. So the idea is you have the two manifestations of God being the expression of God, God's glory through the Son, you have the source of God's glory being the Father, and then you have the personal being of God that actually connects the physical world and the immaterial world and the Holy Spirit, the omnipresent uh, person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that connects everything together. So it is significant that the river flows from the throne of God and connects literally heaven to earth. 
uh, via the New Jerusalem and the newly created heaven and earth. But if you're wondering, uh, will it be hydrogen and oxygen molecules? Yeah, I have no reason to think there won't actually be a river. But the meaning behind it, the symbol, is also relevant, and our Lord defined it many times as a reference to the Spirit which he would send. So note that point. It's these pictures of his presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another question, did the Pharisees not understand Jesus, or did they know and not care, like, and he gives an example of Satan knowing God but rebelling anyway, a pastor he is under said the Pharisees were blind and didn't understand. Well, that's true to a point in referencing Isaiah, but understand there's no one who uh, can't hear than the one who isn't listening, if you will. Uh, Why did Jesus speak in parables, all these points, but I guess as far as the hearts of the Pharisees, and let's be clear, not all of them, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, Joseph Arimathea and others, they were all a part of this as well, and a part of the ruling class, and there are others who, of course, converted, but the—how can I leave out the Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus? But when it comes to their state of heart or state of mind, what was the bigger issue? Yes, this is from John 10, verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again—notice that word again, (laughs) this is kind of a— habit of the the Jews against Jesus, Uh, again, to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, for good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God." seems from that passage that they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself. There, there are various times, especially in the Gospel of John, that he highlights where they, it seems like the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying better than most evangelical Christians today understood what Jesus was claiming about himself. But the point is, is it's not that they didn't understand what he was claiming, it's that they didn't believe what he was claiming about himself. Yeah, and that's a very different thing. Ignoring what he said, they were resentful of what he was saying. That requires an understanding to not like what it is. That's right. And to execute him on the basis of blasphemy, right? So they, again, they absolutely knew what he was saying, but they just didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. That's the issue. Yeah, and the same thing with Satan. It's not that Satan doesn't know God is God, <laughs> it's that he's resentful of that fact and thinks that he could, well, won't pretend to know the mind of a cherub, but we do know there's a lot of pride there, so note self-deception, not uh, just being stupid. So, that being said, let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah. Uh, Here's another question. Is it a sin to be single? Hmm. Yeah, no, really interesting question, and uh, I want to be careful with it because I know where this is coming from. So, um, What you could say is looking at our modern culture that's becoming increasingly selfish and narcissistic, there are many people that define, well, I don't want to get married, I want to live live my life as a single person. Now, what they mean by that is I want to sleep around, I want to be sexually promiscuous, and I never want to be held down by a long-term monogamous relationship in which I commit myself wholly to one person and seek to make a life with them in which I'm never going to divorce them. So that's... Is that what I'm doing? (laughs) So that is how a lot of people in our culture would define singleness. Or they might just be individuals who, uh, in, in essence, they're more okay with the idea of not marrying because they essentially 
and uh, not to be too crude or crass, this is actually happening in large numbers in like Japan, for instance, mm-hmm. where they're actually pretty happy with just pornography and things like that. They're like, well, I'm, I'm getting my sexual needs met in this venue and I just don't want to develop a romantic relationship or maybe I'm just doing it in an online forum, right? I'm, I'm relating to women in that way and therefore, or men in that way, and therefore I don't feel the need to actually get into a relationship and get married. So if, if that's your definition of singleness, then yeah, that's a sin, right? That is, that is a sign of your selfishness. It is a sign of you not wanting to engage in your sexuality in a way that honors God. There's a really good proverb that says it is an abomination for a man to eat food and then vomit it back up. That's not a proverb against food poisoning. That is a proverb about someone who would eat food just for the taste and then throw it back up because they don't want the consequences. No bulimia. Yeah. So uh, this would be sexuality. I want the benefits of sexuality. I want to view you and to be able to gratify myself towards the image of you or to have a little fling with you, but I don't want to commit myself to you. That would be an abomination in God's eyes, taking the pleasure of uh, of something without the substance of something. Now, if your view on singleness is much like Jeremiah or Daniel or Paul, who were directly called by God because of extreme circumstances or because of various things happening in their own life where they decided, I want to dedicate myself to the work of the ministry. I want to dedicate my life wholly to God and to the work that he has placed in front of me. Samuel is another example of this, right? You have these individuals who don't get married for that reason and for that cause. I I can't possibly think of a way that you can make a biblical argument that that's sinful, considering the fact that you have people in the Bible being commanded to do it and by God. God, And you have Paul saying in first Corinthians seven, I wish you were all like me. Right. And uh, by the way, he's referencing a specific thing that's happening. They were in uh, the middle of tribulation and persecution from Rome at that point. But regardless, Paul is making an encouragement for people to maybe consider the single life, to consider the celibate life and honoring God in that way. So the church has kind of gotten that wrong in the past and been like, well, therefore, it's inherently more righteous to be single than to be married because, you know, Jesus was single and these guys. No. Uh, Paul is very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. Hey, whatever way you are called, honor God, right? So if you're single, be happy with your singleness. If you're married, be happy with your marriage, right? Learn how to honor God in your calling. So there is nothing inherently wrong with being single. It is a lifestyle that God will call people to, and this is very important. It is a lifestyle that actually God calls everybody to. He just, some people end their singleness at a certain point in their life. But at one point in my life, I was called to being a single man for God. And it wasn't until I was 25 years old that I finally got married. But during that time, I had to live in a celibate way, and I had to dedicate my celibacy to God. And, uh, I feel like you can run into a lot of problems by believing that I'm not whole or I'm not going to be able to be happy unless I am in a romantic relationship. And that lust, that dissatisfaction can motivate you into some pretty gnarly relationships because you're not looking at things with both eyes open. So uh, be careful about that as well. I think it is a noble thing. In the Proverbs, it says, he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It is a noble thing to be married. It is a beautiful thing to be married. Will everybody get married, though? No. And even people who are married, you might not be married for your entire life. You might become a widow, and you might become single after that. You might decide, you know what? I don't really want to get married. I've, I've had my time with my wife. I had my time with my husband. Now I'm going to live a single life. Uh, it just depends on the individual. Again, nothing wrong with getting remarried after that, but some people will live single lives 
just be sure that you're dedicating your singleness to God and you're not looking at it through the lens of the culture. Yeah, and I think this would all just come down to, again, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 28. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Interesting, Paul. If singleness is sin, then you're encouraging people in Scripture, in context, to commit something in conflict with God's nature, unless that's an unbiblical and unjustifiable position. The issue is the heart, and if someone is in a place in their life where they're content in their singleness, not using it as a cloak for vice, not using it as a means to avoid consequences of relationship compromises, but like in the state that I am, excuse me, just focusing on their relationship with God, just as relevant and biblical as you and your relationship with your wife, reflecting God's nature to her first and foremost, and to the body of Christ as well. This is really interesting, because the first time I heard this argument was actually from Mormons. So in the Mormon faith, unless you are sealed for time and eternity, unless you engage in the sacrament of marriage in the temple specifically, you cannot ascend to the celestial level of heaven. You can get there, but you have to serve as like an angelic being. So there are actually... uh, angels in the Mormon faith, but they're not angels the way we understand them, people, uh, beings who are created by God in the angelic capacity. In the Mormon faith, angels are faithful Mormons who were never married. Yeah, they're being punished and withheld from spiritual blessings and glory that could have been due to them if they had simply followed through and done this, in which, again, you can challenge their theology all day, but since you can get married by proxy in temples on behalf of people, I don't know how ultimately every (laughs) angel becomes a god anyway, but that's another issue. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting, but that passage from 1 Corinthians 7, there are uh, a couple Mormon testimonies I've heard, Mormons who've converted to Christianity, that that's the one that did it, because they're like, well, if marriage is so important to becoming a god... The crowning, uh, what is it, uh, achievement of the gospel program? Right then why would Paul encourage people not to be married? You know, like that, that doesn't make any sense for, from a Mormon perspective. So yeah, I've, I've heard this one from Mormons before because they would look at a uh, refusal to be married and uh, an encouragement towards single life as being a sin and actually a pretty grand one from their theological perspective. I've never heard it from other perspectives before, so it's interesting, but clearly the Bible doesn't teach that. Yeah. All right. Um, question from Robert. I'm not sure I understand the question, so I'll just keep it general, but I guess, uh, how do you know you're hearing from God? Hmm. Yeah, so... Test all things, hold fast to what is good, how is that done? If uh, what you hear, or what you think you're hearing from God comes up, where do you go? Obviously with Scripture, but what's the proper handling of that? Uh, yeah, so... I guess it gets into the point of, can God guide us outside of Scripture? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, you you do see instances of this in the Bible. Obviously, there are times where people of God are being led by the Holy Spirit to do particular things. However, number one, this is something that people fail to see. The amount of times that God leads people directly like that are frighteningly low, even for people that were used in really... Uh, not trivial, but very important times in church and Israeli history, 
God's movement in this very specific way are very, very small. He doesn't do it often at all. In fact, there are times where even the Apostle Paul thought that God was leading him to do something, and then it's like, nope, the Holy Spirit is preventing us from doing this, right? So there, there are instances in which people think that God is leading them, and they are actually wrong. Uh, my favorite example, I mean, not uh, example of this, but my favorite example of someone who is used powerfully by God, but never to, to our knowledge, receives a direct word from God would be Esther, right? So in the book of Esther, the name God is actually not used at all, and you have someone who is literally utilized to save the entire nation of Israel, and God never speaks to her directly. He speaks through her uncle Mordecai, who says to her, well, how do you know you weren't raised up to the kingdom for such a time as this, right? So he, he points out her need to act and behave in a way that's in keeping with God's law, but she never receives a direct revelation from God of what to do or when to do it. Just acts so, in light of what she already knew. Just acts in light of what she already knew. So can God lead outside of his scripture? Yeah, but he very, very rarely does it. So when I speak to someone and they're claiming that God is leading them on even the most trivial of issues of what to eat for dinner, I have to really call that into question. I'm like, I just don't really believe that God is communicating with you on that direct of a level. Um, I, I think that you might be kind of taking your mind and deifying it. And this reminds me of a quotation from George Whitfield, very famous pastor during the Great Awakening. And he had a son that he named John because he genuinely believed that God was telling him that his son would be the next John the Baptist, that he would have a ministry very similar to John the Baptist. He dedicated his son in front of the church. He gave a sermon, a really stirring sermon, about how his son was going to be utilized in this amazing way, and his son unfortunately died a couple months later. So here's a really faithful man, believed in God, uh, was doing amazing things in the Word and in the Lord, and he was mistaken about when God was leading him. And later on, he speaks about this, and he says, I took my natural emotions of wanting so badly for my son to succeed, and I turned them into the voice of God. It's very simple to do that. We need to be careful when we think that God is leading us. Always, always, always test what God is saying to you right now against the revelation of that he has already made through Scripture. And by the way, this doesn't just mean morally. Right, So I'm not just taking what God might be telling me to do in a moral sense of, well, I'm not violating any of God's commandments, so I don't understand why this would be a bad thing. Look through the Proverbs as well. Is it a wise thing to do? Because God's not going to lead you to do something that is unwise unless he does something amazing and miraculous to confirm that. So there are instances in the Bible where God leads people around or away from what we traditionally call sound wisdom, like, for instance, Gideon. Uh, not very sound wisdom for Gideon to take 300 guys and go up against, like, what, 80,000 Midianites, right? It sounds like a really foolish thing to do, but God gave him some really, really incredible confirmation that this is, was him speaking to Gideon. So if you've gotten some amazing, amazing confirmation, I'm not just talking about you prayed to God that he would give you a sign and a dove landed on your car today. I mean, like, Something like on the level of Gideon, where you leave a fleece out and literally the next morning it's wet and nothing else is, like nothing else is wet. Or, you know, God actually sends a prophetic messenger into your life and speaks to you things that only you could have known out of nowhere and tells you these, right? It would have to be something that 
crazy in order for you to believe this is from God. Otherwise, follow sound wisdom, right? Look at what would be wise in the situation, challenge what you are supposedly receiving through God, and definitely, definitely hold things in loose hands. Don't assume this is God speaking. It might be your subconscious, and you want to be sure that it isn't. And just as, again, a small outlier to the proverb principle, if God's speaking to you about an emotional state being preserved, or maybe your misunderstanding of that and being associated with, well, God won't steal your joy, so why am I unhappy? There's more important things than your emotional state. Those things can follow and be associated with blessings, but God can be doing good things to us, and we don't notice, mm-hmm. and we don't react appropriately. Maybe we don't even understand it until uh, this side of heaven, I guess mm-hmm. would be the best way to put it. Just be careful. Test those things, not just according to God's Word, but to truth. I repeat myself. The point, though, being made is just that, Robert. Let us know if that was what you were talking about, but if not, uh, email us. We'll think it through more. Uh, and we'll finish with this uh, contradiction for the day. This is regarding what is Sodom's sin. In Luke 10, 10 through 12, the post says it was inhospitality. Jude 1, 7 says it was sexual immorality, but Jeremiah 23, 14 says it was adultery and lies. When it comes to contradictions, there's always a two-step process in dealing with these things. First, know what a contradiction is. A violation of the second formal law of logic that A does not equal non-A. Two things, or in this case three, in, in the same way and in the same sense can't all be true and at the same time cancel one another out. Now, if this were a contradiction, then it would have to, of course, be assumed by the questioner that sexually immoral people are always hospitable and never lie. Or people who lie and commit adultery are always sexually moral and hospitable, or that inhospitable people never commit sexual morality or adultery or lie. That's, of course, nonsense. If, on the other hand, though, we follow our second step, which is to call the bluff, show me where and when, this contradiction is taking place. They gave us three. Well, according to Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 14, apparently this was adultery and lies, but note it, what it actually says. Also, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They, oh, not Sodom, Jerusalem, they commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me, and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. A comparison is made not by direct association, but the fact they're both worthy in this context of the judgment of God. Go two verses prior. It says, I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. That's uh, what happened in Genesis 19. And again, for the sake of time, we'll clarify this point as well. Note that these contradictions can be answered fairly straightforwardly. Just remember those two steps, know what a contradiction is, and be willing to actually look up the verses. It's a lot easier than it's made out to be. God bless you all. Thank you for the time and joining us for the broadcast. We'll see you all again tomorrow. Till then, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.